Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Hi, my name is Mark, and I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Morning, church. How you guys doing? Lots of killer seats up front here, but I know uh, you save those for special people. You are those special people, okay? Um, If you're just joining us or if you forget everything that happened in the last six days, we are in a series called Life on Purpose. And uh, what would it mean for us as people in our everyday lives to live with a sense of purpose? Now, even as I say that, I don't know about you, but when I think about, oh, my life's purpose, I'm caught between two sort of opposing feelings. On the one hand, that that brings up in me this thing that's deep inside me that wants, that believes I have a purpose to fulfill in life, that that there's some sort of thing that if if I were to live that way, I would have a greater sense of fulfillment, of joy in my life's work, in my relationships, that, yeah, that, I do have that sense ever since I was even young that I was made for more, that there's something in my life that is meant to come out, and that this idea of living life on purpose is, yeah, what I'm meant to be. And yet, the other extreme, the feelings that I have is like, oh my gosh, like, I, like, I can't even think about that. Like, I'm just trying to survive. You know, like purposeful living, like it seems so 
grand, the capital P purpose, that there would be a purpose for my life, and that somehow I would, you know, we use language like this, or we, people say this, like, that we would make a difference in the world. Sometimes I go, I'm just barely making a difference in my own life. Like, I just need to deal with what's in front of me for the next 24 hours. I can't even think about this issue of purpose, and I find I move back and forth between those things, right? Any of you feel me? Like, that's the reality, right? On the one hand, we know and sense that we were made for more, But then oftentimes the more we think about that or the more that seems disconnected from everyday life, the temptation is to go, you know what, that's maybe for the small percentage of people in life who are, you know, kicking butt and taking names out there. I just, that's not me. It's too much to figure out. I can't do it. I'm just getting by. I'm trying not to scream at my kids today. I'm trying to not hate my boss, you know? I'm trying to keep my job. I'm trying to get a job. I'm trying to just, you know, get by in my class and my grades or survive this one year and I don't have a group of... I, I can't even think about that other stuff. And, and especially, like, never mind making a difference in the world. So I think that's real, right? That tension. But here's why we can't give up on this quest for purpose in our lives, First of all, because it's so deep inside every one of us, it's never going to go away. When you read articles about people who have spent time with people who are dying, you know, in their last days, their mind doesn't drift to what they did on weekend X or, you know, that they wish they could have worked just a few more hours a week. Like, no one says that stuff. They all go to the deeper things of life relationships, meaning, did I make a difference in the world? So you can't escape this, friend. Sorry for bumming you out in the first five minutes. You, you can't get away from it, so you, you can't just ignore it. But here's the other reason. The world around us is desperate for people who are living life on purpose. I don't know about you, but I get tired of reading the stuff that's going on in the world around me. And, and not just maybe the chaos in the world out there, but there's a lot of chaos in, in here too. And in the relationships and friendships that you have in life, we are living in a world that is crying out for more purpose and more meaning and for people to live their purpose so that it makes a difference to the world around us. I'm not one of those people who thinks the world is worse than it used to be. I just think we know more than we used to know. We are more aware of what's going on in other parts of the world. We're more aware of what's going on in the human psyche. We're more aware of all the dynamics that are going on and social media keeps us connected to so many things. We are more aware of how chaotic and broken this world is. And so if you and I are going to have a purpose in life, it has to be connected to what this world needs. It has to be. Our purpose in life has to have something connected to making a difference in the world and changing the world that we live in, even if it's just, you know, the 20 feet that happens to exist around our desk at school or at work or a shop floor or wherever we happen to be in our family and a kitchen table or Thanksgiving dinner. We need to be people who live life on purpose that has an impact in the world around us. And yet, you go, oh, how, how on earth can I do that? How can this thing that I'm doing every day actually have an impact and change the world? The beautiful thing about Jesus, you know, we sang um, today, you know, Jesus, we love you, we love you. And maybe you're one of those people that's saying, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I love Jesus yet. I'm not sure about all of that. You'd say, well, why, why would we love Jesus? Well, because Jesus offers us this beautiful life, this this thing that actually invites us into purpose. Because if, if we don't acknowledge the needs and the world around us in our life's purpose, do you know what we'll end up doing? We'll end up ignoring the needs of the world around us. 
because otherwise, then people and stuff just get in the way of our own purposes, right? If our purpose isn't tied to making the world better, then the broken world will just get in the way of whatever else we're trying to do, and we'll just get annoyed and cold-hearted and ignorant to everything that's going on around us. And Jesus invites us out of the tension of sort of going, I know I'm made for this, but I feel like it's too much, into saying, let me show you what life is like. And the premise that we've been operating out of these last few weeks through one of the biographies of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew is that the word that Jesus uses to invite us into a purposeful life is the word kingdom. It's not a common word for us. It's a word we associate with Game of Thrones or something like that, but not everyday life. Like, what is the kingdom? And as I said to you, the kingdom, in, in, in the language that Jesus used, the Greek word is basileia, which, which is where we get basilica from, but that's a mistranslation because we think of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, if you've ever been there, whatever. They like, like buildings. But Jesus was not thinking, he wasn't saying your purpose in life is a building, right? Or like churches or palaces or whatever. He said, that's not what the kingdom. The kingdom of God is what he meant, the reign of God or the realm of God. And he actually said the realm of God isn't like heaven someday, one day in the future, streets of gold. It's, it's right here, right now, if you would only actually have the awareness to see it. In other words, God is in your everyday life. And he's inviting you in to do your everyday life with a greater awareness of the fact that he's right there with you. And he says, I want you to do life with me, but I don't want you to do it the way the rest of the world is doing or what your default way is. I want you to do your life differently. I want you to think about your relationships differently. I want you to think about your school, your job, your friends, your family, sex, money, everything. I want you to think about it differently, the world according to God. And so Jesus is constantly teaching them, here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's like this. It's like this. It's like this. So the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus is showing us Like, Jesus isn't this superhero that we just look at and go, wow, he's amazing. I mean, we are, but he's actually showing us what life is meant to be like as a human. If What if a human being lived life fully aligned with the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus' life looked like. It's actually a model for us to go, oh, that's what life would look like if I was actually living in the kingdom of God on the kingdom of this earth. So he's teaching, and what's interesting is about purpose in life, because we can think, you know, Capital P purposes, it's grand. What is my purpose? And he became this morning saying, will one, will one of these weeks someone just tell me what it is for me? The interesting thing about Jesus, he was always talking about purpose in very small things. You know what, and you know what it was? It was always about the heart. He says, I know we think purpose is about what you're going to do for a living and what grand difference you're going to make in the world. But Jesus kept bringing it down to these two things. What is your heart towards God like? And what is your heart towards others? The kingdom of God, he says, in getting this right, begins with the heart. And the heart in the scriptures doesn't mean your actual the organ. It means the center of what is most important to you, your emotions, your values, the deepest parts, of the reality of who you are. He says, God is interested. We often tend to think and live in the world out there and what we can see and what image we can present to each other and all of that stuff and what people are doing on YouTube that seemingly make a difference in the world. And Jesus says, no, the whole thing begins with what's going on inside you. Because we've all read about or had experiences even in our own life, it's possible to do great things and yet inside, not is all right. Things are coming apart on the inside. And so Jesus' first and foremost interest, and for you and I, if we're trying to figure out what is my life's purpose, is saying, well, what's going on in your heart? What is your heart towards God like, and what is your heart towards other people? And so in one of these sections in Matthew 18, he's talking about the issue of forgiveness. And he actually says, look, like in, in the 
in this family, right, in, in this family of God, brothers and sisters, there's going to be times where we do things that hurt each other or where we see other people making destructive decisions for themselves that's wrecking their life. And he says, you know, there's no lengths to which you should stop to try to help someone out of that to forgive them, to restore them, to be reconciled, to come back together. This is what you have to fight for, to love each other so much that you would go to, you would not stop at anything to bring each other back into relationship with God and into right relationship with each other. So he's telling them, this is what it's like in the kingdom of God. It's a matter of heart. It's how you value relationships. Do you care enough about each other to go get each other when each other is, is, is in trouble? Do you care enough about each other to help each other when two people are fighting with one another to help them come back together? whether in their friendships or in their marriage or in the, in the body of Christ, this family. He's talking with the heart. And Peter, God loved Peter, right? He just says the stuff that we would all say if we were there. It's like, the, you know that kid in class who always asked the dumb questions? And you were like, oh, I'm so glad you said it because you sound dumb, but I really want to know the answer too. Some of you are like, what? You're like, I guess you're that one. No, but it's like we're all, we're all in that place where we're like, I wish I could ask. Peter would just say stuff that come out of his mouth, right? I'm sure he got tired of the disciples writing that. And again, he's like, Matthew, really? Did you have to record that? He's like, well, you said it, man. Like, this, you know, and someone, someone's going to learn someday from you, Peter. So be happy. And so here we are. Peter comes up to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21, after he's talking about forgiveness. He says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So Jesus is talking about how we're supposed to be treating each other in the kingdom of God and that relationships, how we treat each other is really important to God. And Peter asked the question that religion always asks. Would you just give me the boundaries? What is it? How much? How often? Tell me the rules so I can be a good person and know I'm okay with God, right? This is the heart of religion. This is why we all love religion. Just tell us what to do. I don't have to think. When do I pray? How often? What holy place do I go? How many times? How much money do I have to give? Just tell me. I don't want to have to think. This is the heart of religion. And Jesus is coming to these people. And he's talking to them about their heart. And he's poking, actually, at the religion. And so the religious leaders, if you read the Gospels, are Jesus' sort of um, main opponents. And it's easy to look at them as like, oh, yeah, look at those guys that Jesus keeps sticking it to. But we have to understand the heart of religion is actually in every one of us. This, like, just tell me the rules so I can obey it and know I'm a good person. And the reason Jesus was poking at religion all the time, he says, you know what, the problem with religion is you have maybe have a good motive in your heart that you want to be a good person, but if all it is is about following rules, you know what it's going to do? It's going to make you self-righteous because you're going to look down on other people who don't, and it's going to make you unsympathetic and uncompassionate to people who can't. And that's exactly what was happening. Their religion had made them self-righteous and uncompassionate. And so Jesus is talking about the heart, not about the rules. And Peter still is like, yeah, okay, but how much? And it's interesting in this question, he says, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Conventional wisdom at the time and the religious leaders said, hey, up to three times, you're being a righteous person. Like, you, you, you only have to forgive someone up to three times. And they thought, like, if someone keeps doing the same thing over and over, the, the general rule of the religious culture that day was three times. So Peter's thinking, like, he's going to kill. I'm going to overshoot that. Like, it's kind of like negotiation, right? Like, when you were young, you're like, dad, can I have a thousand bucks? A thousand bucks? No, okay, how about ten, right? Like, you're like, the negotiation, right? So Peter's thinking, okay, I know it's going to be more than three because Jesus is always poking at these things. I'm going to go way past. I'm going to shoot like seven. That's more than two times. Plus seven 
in, in that culture, in, Gre- in the Greco-Roman culture and, and in Hebrew language, was seven was a perfect number. It was a complete number. So isn't that the number that you have to pull on the slots? Is that how that works, right? Lucky seven, is that one? Yeah, because seven is this number of like complete. So Peter's almost like saying like, okay, look, Lord, I'm, I'm like, and, and if Jesus says yes, he's probably thinking like, see, guys, I, got, I finally got one right, right? <clears throat> so he says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says, what does he say? Does, do I have any heaven here? Jesus says to him, Mark read it for us, no, 70 times seven. To which Peter's like, carry the one, that's a lot. He, here's what Peter would have reacted like when Jesus says 70 times seven. You ever, you ever have, uh, you have a dumb face? You ever had a dumb face? You're like, like he wouldn't, it wouldn't have computed. Because 70 times 7, or 70, 77 times 7, depending on the, how they translated the Greek, he, he includes three sevens. He, he's like, you're doing addition. You're going from 3 to 7. I'm doing multiplication. Exponentially more than you think, right? 70 times 7. It's not about the math. Jesus is saying, you don't get it. You're thinking, hey, what's the rules? And Jesus blows the rules out of the water to which he would have been going, I don't even know what to do with that. What are you saying? To which Jesus says, okay, well, let me tell you a story, right? And so he tells him this parable, which is a fictitious story, about the kingdom of heaven, right? So he set it up. He's like, how am I supposed to treat people? How often do I forgive? Jesus says, you don't get it. It's, it's exponentially more than you think. Peter doesn't know what he means. So he says, okay, well, this is how life works in the kingdom. Let me tell you a story. So he says, there was a master whose servant owed him 10,000 talents. Now, essentially, that was, and it says the master was going to settle his accounts with his servants. So this isn't someone who, like, borrowed money from someone. This was an estate manager. Okay, so think about this. So people who were very wealthy in those times hired servants, but those servants weren't slaves who like washed the floor or something. They were servants who took the master's money and invested it for them. So they were fund managers. Okay, so it's the master's money, but these servants have responsibility for it. So when it says the master's going to settle his accounts, he's like, hey, I'm just going to collect on my investments. So he goes to this servant who Jesus says owes him 10,000 talents. Now, here's what you need to know about the culture. 10,000 was the largest number that they had in Greek that you could write at the time. So Jesus picks the largest number, and a talent was the largest weight or amount of money that like a single talent was like, it was 6,000 days wage, one talent, okay? So this was 10,000, 6,000 days wage, a gajillion dollars, okay? Jesus is using the language to say, this servant owed the master trillions, Okay, so he's settling his account, and he's saying, hey, time to give it back. And the guy says, I can't, I can't pay it. I don't have it. Which means this guy lost the master's money. He was either stupid or lazy or deceitful, probably all three, and then not telling the master the whole time, because he's an account manager, right? It's like, imagine like someone's managing your investments and they're starting to go down and down and down and down and they don't tell you. And there was no like stock market. So it would have taken him a long time to get into this hole. And so he has mismanaged this person's money, lost trillions 
been lazy and deceitful and totally like messed up in his job. And the master says, okay, time to pay. And of course, he begs for his life. And he says, like, just, just I'll pay it back, which was absurd. It would have taken him 160,000 years based on his day's wage to pay him back, literally. Okay, so the, the I'll pay it back, just give me time was an absurd response. So the master does what you do. It say, well, then you and your wife and your kids are now my slaves. You're not my servants anymore. You're not managing money anymore. Now you're my slaves because you have to pay for this with your life. This is just how it goes. You don't have any other, there's no other equity. There's no bankruptcy. Like, I'm just, you now belong to me. You are my property now. And it says the, the, the slave begged and the servant begged and please, please, please. Then it says this. In, in most of your translations, it says this. The master had pity on him. Okay, but pity is a poor translation. Pity means, like, we can kind of think pitiful, like, oh, like, that's pathetic. Like, just get up. Stop growling. The better translation is, the master's heart went out to him. Isn't that beautiful? The master sees this servant in a predicament that he can never get himself out of, that he has gotten himself into, but he can never get himself out of. He's facing the prospect of his whole family and his whole life being completely wiped out. And the master's heart, the one who had just lost trillions, who's coming to terms with the fact that this guy doesn't, has no way to pay back, his heart went out to him. And he doesn't give him a repayment plan. He doesn't cut the debt to 10%. He doesn't say, okay, just you are my slave, but not your wife and your kids. He says, you're free. It says he canceled the debt. It's gone. Now, I don't know if you've ever lived with debt or something that you're trying to get rid of. It weighs on you, right? Doesn't it affect your everyday life? Like it's there all the time. So this servant suddenly has the experience of all of that mess he had made, knowing one day he was going to have to give an account, and it happens, and now it's gone. He's free, literally free, not just free from the debt, but everything inside him is like, he's free. And yet he has the most ironic response to the master's forgiveness. It says he goes out into, and he says it goes out into the estate, so he's still on the property of the master and finds one of the other fund managers who owes him about three months' worth of wages, a hundred denarii or a couple hundred denarii, which was 600,000 times less than what he owed. And it says he starts choking the guy. It says, give me back what you owe me. 600,000 times less of what he had just been freed from. And the guy begs him, just give me time, I can pay it back. Which was a realistic request, okay? It's three to four months. He probably could if he was given more time. Not like the stupid suggestion the guy had said a few minutes earlier. Let me pay back, I only need 160,000 years. He's... And this guy says, no. And he throws him into jail until it can get repaid. Well, the master, like the other servants, find out, right? And tell the master, and he loses it. Look what he says. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Now, just stop there for a second. I remember when I was nine, I went to India with my parents. It was the first time I'd been there. And my dad takes me to this Hindi movie, which is like all in Hindi. I don't, like, I don't, like, I don't speak Hindi. So we're watching this thing. There's no even subtitles. So I don't know what's going on. But have you ever seen Bollywood movies? They're highly entertaining. So it's very interesting, even if you, 
you can even watch them. The other day, I was, when I was flying back from Dubai, I was like watching, you know, like someone's watching TV, but like the, the other movies are more interesting. And it was like a Bollywood movie. And I was like, I just can't help watch this. I don't even know what's going on, but this is so fascinating. I wasn't even paying attention to what was on my screen. So every so often in the theater, everybody would clap. And I was like, Dad, why are they clapping? What's going on? Like several times, never seen it before. Like in, nobody does that in movie theaters or in. He said, oh, every time they're clapping, it's because somebody said or did something that was just and right. And everybody cheered, right? So Jesus is telling the story. And as he's telling the story, the, the listeners, their ire, their anger is getting riled up. Like he's telling this story, provoking them to go, I cannot believe that servant, what he did. And so when the master says, you're, we're going to throw you in jail until you're tortured, like people would have clapped, right? And maybe Peter was clapping, right, too? Like, yes, yes, until Jesus says this. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Boom. Peter been like, oh. Right, because whenever Jesus was telling parables, stories, the purpose was for them and for us is, who am I in this story? Where, where he's telling us a word picture to try to help us locate ourselves. You get that? And Jesus then, just so they're not unclear at all, let me make it painfully obvious for you. God, your father, is the master. Your brother or sister who has hurt you is the one who owes you 600,000 times less than you. You're the one in the middle. So Peter's saying, hey, how, how many times do I have to forgive my brother and sister? And Jesus tells the story. It's saying, you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, how many times do I have to forgive someone? How many times do I have to be gracious with someone? How many times do I have to put up with this person who's doing this thing? The question is, do you have a heart like God's? Do you have a heart like God's? So he's saying, look, look at the master who was owed trillions but whose heart went out to the person who had wounded him. This is why he says at the end, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. It's the second time the word heart is used in the story. The first time is the master's heart going out to him. And Jesus says, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This isn't about the rules. This is about what's going on in your heart towards your brother and sister. And the question is, do you have a heart like God's heart? And the parable of the story is, is like unmistakable. The, 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 the point, the twist. If you don't want to forgive somebody, if you are counting how many times someone has done something to you and waiting to get to the end of that number to say, I don't have to do it anymore. If you are struggling, if you are constantly aware of what other people have done to you, if most of your thoughts towards people is what they have done, what they shouldn't have done, what they should have done but didn't, Jesus says something's wrong with your heart. Something inside is wrong, is off. You need to deal with that. It's very easy for us, and maybe, maybe you've heard this parable before, to say, to be shamed into forgiveness, right? Well, look how much God has forgiven you. How come you can't forgive someone else? I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. 
He was trying to help them understand the heart that God has and let that change their heart. Not shamed into forgiveness. Because you know what the problem is? For many of us, we can look at it and say, well, what someone has done to me is not 600,000 times less than what I've done to God. Like, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know that. But this person, what they did, and look, some of you have been through things that are horrendous, where people have deeply hurt you, what they've done, what they haven't done, what they've said. And so I don't want you to read this or hear from me that Jesus' way of getting us to forgive is to minimize what has been done to us. Oh, you're being petty. Sometimes we are being petty, okay? So if we are, we need to take that. But that isn't all the stuff we deal with. There are deep things that have been done to us that are not about saying that's so insignificant. He's trying to get them to see this is how big God's heart is. And the more you know his heart, the more it will begin to change your heart. Because, friends, you and I know that the more we hold on, the more we fix our eyes on what others have done to us, right? This is what that servant did. He forgot what his relationship with God was about, and all he was thinking about was what the other person owed him. And the more we think about what other people owe us, the debt that's outstanding, what they have done, what they didn't do, what they keep doing, it will rot us from the inside out. Right? Someone once said famously, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The more we hang on to it, the, Jesus is telling this story to paint a picture. Look how ugly that looks, right? Everybody listening is going, ooh, that's ugly, <laughs> right? Seriously, that's what you did with the freedom you have is to go and demand that from another person. He's trying to get us to see this is what happens to your heart when you live like that. He says, you know what the heart of God is? He saw the person and not the debt. Debt was huge. Make no mistake about it. But he saw the person and not the debt, and so his heart went out to the person, so he forgave him. That servant went out, and all he saw was the debt that he was owed. And so he choked the person and didn't care for his life and wanted payment. And Jesus says, you need to see God's heart. He values the person more than the debt. And that's the change that needs to happen in us. Every one of us. That somehow our hearts would be like the Father's heart. Isn't it interesting, right, how Jesus says, he didn't say this is how God will treat you. He says, this is how my Father. He's a Father. He has a heart that goes out to you in your predicament, in all the mess you've made by your own decisions. God's heart goes out to you. So what does it mean for your heart to go out to people? And he says at the end of this parable, something that should make us all go, wait, what? He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The question we should all be asking is, wait, does that mean God's forgiveness is conditional? Right? Does that mean God won't forgive me 
if I don't forgive other people? Is that what this is? Because I thought God offered us grace. Someone said it this way, and it's never forgotten. I've never forgot it. It says, forgiveness to God is like your lungs. Do this with me for a moment. I want you to breathe in through your nose really deeply. It's just going to help your brain anyway. Breathe out through your mouth. Now breathe in and hold your breath. As deep as you can. Okay, stop. Hold your breath. Can you breathe in anymore? No. What do you have to do? Breathe it out. This is how forgiveness works. You can't breathe it out if you haven't breathed it in. And you can't keep taking the grace of God in if you're not breathing it out. Get it? It's not conditional. It's just the way grace works. The more we breathe it in, the more you breathe it out. So if we're not breathing out grace, but we're breathing out judgment and we're breathing out criticism and we're breathing out bitterness, Jesus says, you haven't got grace because you haven't got grace. You can't breathe it out because you haven't breathed it in. That's why you, you can't be forgiven by me because you don't understand what forgiveness is. If you're holding payment, if you're holding out for payment this way, you don't realize I'm not holding out payment for you and you're living in a debt-debtor relationship with me too. You don't get it. Forgiveness in our own lives becomes a barometer, an indicator for how much we really understand the grace of God towards us. So for me, what this has always meant is if I find bitterness in my heart, if I find difficulty forgiving someone, and even writing this sermon this week, there's like three people I'm like, I got to go. I got to go talk to this person. I always felt like, oh, they're little things. I can whatever, let it go. But I realized I hadn't let it go because it just came up. Whenever that's in my heart, I'm realizing, wait, I'm missing something about the grace of God to me. If I'm holding out for payment for somebody else, And that's even what we do. Even when we're bitter towards another person, you're holding out for payment. That's what you're doing. Because oftentimes, what what payment can be made to us for the things that people have done? Can they take them back? Can we go back in time? Can they undo what has been done? No. So what we do to hold out for payment is we just hold on to the thing. And we rehearse it. And we think about it. And we picture it. And we look at it. And that's how we're holding out for it. We're holding out for payment. And Jesus says, if that's what's going on in your heart, you don't realize that God sees you and not the debt you owe. So breathe it in. Breathe it in. If you're having a hard time forgiving, worship God. Like breathe and remember who he is. Remember his heart. That's why we sing all of these songs about who God is over and over and over again because we're trying to breathe it in. And take it in and let my mind and my heart really understand the heart of God to me. Because if I have it, I can give it. If I get grace, I've got grace. If I breathe it in, I can breathe it out. You might say, well, what does this have to do with our purpose? Well, what does this world need? This world needs grace. It needs forgiveness. Do you know how many things would be healed in our world if people forgave each other? I remember when uh, in, you probably if you were alive then, you remember where you were, November 11, 2001. 
And I remember the president of the United States at the time getting on the thing and saying, we are going to wipe out evil forever, you know. And there were 5,000 people that died that day through a terrorist attack. But there are hundreds of thousands of people that are killed every day by their spouse or by other fellow citizens of the same country they're in who are not terrorists. I remember thinking, well, who's going to deal with those? How are we going to ever eradicate evil? You know, terrorism is not what's killing the world. Unforgiveness is. Bitterness. And apathy from everybody else. We think, oh, I can't change the world. I don't know what my capital P purpose is. Should I be doing this job? Should I not? Should I go into this career or not? Should I take this studies or not? What changes the world is when the world sees something different than what it knows so well. Revenge, bitterness, anger, apathy. When it sees the little light that comes from two people who reconcile, from people who forgive, from relationships that come back together. It is like we are demonstrating the grace of God to the world, one reconciled relationship at a time. The scriptures actually say, you are God's, like all of us, are God's ambassadors. God is making his plea to the world through you. And you know what it says, in, this is in 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Do you know what the plea is? Come back. God's not counting your sins against you. That's what it says. How else do you and I show the world that God is not counting their sins against them? Because everybody thinks that's what God's doing. People don't come to church because they think they're going to get judged. So if God isn't and saying, come back, come home, I love you, I see you, not the debt, how are they going to see that except if you and I say, I see you, not the debt you owe me? How are they going to see that God is not counting their sins against them except if we say, I don't count your sins against you, come home? What does it mean to be people who deal with relationships like that? And, deal, and help others deal with relationships like that in the body. This is what it means to breathe in grace and breathe it out. And that will change the world. Tolerance, diversity, inclusion, all very good things. None of them will change the world. Because you can be tolerant and still have a black heart. It just means you bite your tongue a million times a day. But love, grace, forgiveness... That will change the world, one relationship at a time. And you can do this wherever you are, whatever school you're in, whatever job you're in or not in or hoping to get in or hoping to get out of or relationship, whatever, wherever you are, you can do this. You might say, really? Like, forgiveness is going to change the world? It already did. It already did. The cross of Jesus Christ is not only the symbol of the Christian faith, it is almost synonymous with the word forgiveness. Forgiveness already did change the world. It's why millions of people for the last 12 hours and the next 12 hours or whatever are worshiping Jesus because his forgiveness has changed our lives.